Welcome to the Moms on Maternity YouTube show and podcast. I'm Amy Cruz, and today we have on Dr. Nicole Avina. Dr. Avina is a PhD, um, Doctor of Nutrition, Medicine, and Neuroscience. Tell us a little bit more about your background. Oh, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on. I'm so happy to be able to talk with you today. Um, so yeah, my background is in neuroscience. I have a PhD in neuroscience. I am an assistant professor at Mount Sinai, and I'm also a visiting professor of health psychology at Princeton University. And I'm really interested in how food affects the brain. And so I have this blend of nutrition and neuroscience. And lately, I've been really interested in trying to better understand how that relates to moms and babies. And just really improving the health of those around us. So you really published a book called What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant, is that right? Yes, What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant. It's my new book. It is out in stores now. And it's really a healthy eating guide for people, men and women, who are thinking about maybe getting pregnant and want to just get some information about how nutrition plays a role, how you can optimize your ability to get pregnant by eating the right foods and how you can help yourself along with the process by avoiding foods that can be harmful to your fertility. So how is that neuroscience? Well, so what we know is that food affects our brain and our brain talks to our gut. Everything is so interconnected and we're learning so much now, especially in the past five or six years about this thing called the gut brain axis. And this is basically how it used to be thought that our brains kind of were the boss and dictated all of the information that we needed to tell us how to be healthy and stay healthy. But we're learning now that it's actually the gut that is the boss. And so there's a lot of connections between what we eat and then what happens in our brain and the feedback that comes about. So it is important for fertility. We don't often think about the brain when we think about fertility, but it does play a big role. Is it the aim for everybody or do we have unique needs based on our unique DNA? Well, everybody's different. So that's one thing that we need to keep in mind. I mean, people are going to have unique needs based on their genetic background, based on their lifestyle choices, based on their environment. And so we do know though, that there are basic fundamental nutritional needs that we all have. And many of those can have an impact on our fertility. What, and so- Can you give us some examples? Yeah. So for instance, you know, we know that there are certain nutrients that are important for helping to promote sperm health. And so for instance, uh, lycopene is an example of something that is actually found in tomatoes. And it's a nutrient that we don't always get all that much of. And we know now from the research that it's actually really important for sperm that health. That is so interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting because, you know, it's funny. It's not we tend to think about avoiding processed foods. That's something I'm always talking about. But when it comes to lycopene, we actually find that there's more lycopene available in processed tomato sauce than there is in fresh whole tomatoes. Wow. So this would be the one time. Yeah, I would actually recommend men okay, so going for the processed sauce. Pasta, which I love. Yes, yes. So there's actually more in the processed stuff for, for one example of where the processed food's better for you. Oh, what about for women? Well, women, it's the same in terms of, you know, we have all these different nutritional needs. And if we become deficient in one or more nutrient, it can have a negative impact on our fertility. So one thing that I often talk about with women, and we hear this a lot during pregnancy, is, you know, folic acid. Folic acid is something that's so important. But a lot of times when people are trying to conceive, they're deficient in folic acid. And that can lead to a variety of complications 
early in the pregnancy that can make it very difficult. And so that's why it's and important. And what is that boost high in folic acid again? So folic acid is found in like leafy greens. Think spinach, think collards, think, you know, they're dark leafy greens. But part of the problem is that we don't always absorb all that folic acid that we get from those plants. And we actually destroy a lot of the folic acid when we cook it. And so unless you're eating raw spinach, raw greens all the time, you're probably not getting enough. That's why it's important that people consider taking a supplement, like a prenatal vitamin, which will contain folic acid if they're trying to get pregnant or if they're pregnant already. You recommend supplements uh, for one's entire life or just during the pre-pregnancy and pregnancy phases? Well, I definitely think during the pre-pregnancy and the pregnancy phase, for sure, there's a need for supplements because even if you're trying your best to eat super healthy, it's really hard to do that every single day. And I think that there's so many nuances that can happen where if you become deficient in these nutrients, that it can have a negative impact on your fertility. And we're seeing that, you know, people are putting off having babies till later in life for a variety of reasons. And so that critical window is becoming narrower. And I think people want to optimize their chances. They don't want to, you know, wait till they're in their forties to think about having a baby and then have to wait another three years because it's more difficult because of their advanced age and because of, you know, some environmental things that are happening. Mm -hmm. Have you written any other books on nutrition or is, is this your first? No, this is actually my fourth book, believe it or not. I started um, a couple of years back. I wrote a book called Why Diets Fail. It was all about sugar addiction. I actually got interested in this field. I started in this field studying how sugar impacts the brain. And my lab was studying this idea that maybe some people become addicted to sugar, just like people become addicted to drugs and alcohol. And maybe that explains why people have a hard time cutting back on sugars and carbohydrates. And so I wrote that book, Why Diets Fail, Because You're Addicted to Sugar, a few years back. That was my first book. And then our lab was studying the genesis of this idea of sugar addiction. So I was interested in figuring out, well, when does this start? When does someone get addicted to sugar? And so we started actually doing experiments, looking at the exposure to sugar during pregnancy. And we started to see some really interesting things. And so that led me to believe, to, to want to write another book called What to Eat When You're Pregnant. And it's really a guide for women who are pregnant to really walk them through the different nutritional needs, talk about why it's so important to focus on your diet, not focus on your weight, but focus on the nutrients. Is and it the okay to have sugar while you're pregnant? Oh, absolutely. It's fine to have sugar, but it has to be in moderation. And part of the problem we're seeing these days is that nobody knows what moderation is anymore. It's kind of gone out the window because so many of the foods that we eat are loaded with added sugar. So it can really be hard to decipher. So that's why it's important that people are mindful of, you know, the amount of sugar they're consuming and try to get it from sources that are more natural and healthier for you. Mm -hmm. And what about um, special diets? Is there, um, is it okay to be a vegetarian or vegan while pregnant? Absolutely. If you're a vegetarian or vegan, you can safely do that while you're pregnant, but you do have to be mindful that you could potentially be at risk for some nutrient deficiencies. Like for instance, sometimes if you're not eating the right foods when you're on a vegan or a vegetarian diet, you can have iron deficiency or vitamin B12 deficiency. So you may want to talk to your doctor about it because it could be a situation where you would need to be on a supplement for one or more of those nutrients just to make sure that you're getting enough that you need. Because sometimes it 
it's not always easy to get all of the nutrients we need from plant-based sources, unless you're being super careful about the way you eat. And what about as you, after pregnancy, once baby's here, uh, special nutrition uh, supplement considerations for, you know, the first year of life while they're toddlers, um, as they become, you know, children and teenagers, what should we be thinking? Yeah, absolutely. So that was the, after I wrote what to eat when you are pregnant, the next book I wrote was called what to feed your baby and toddler. And so now if that was written before your latest book. Sorry? Yes, I'm kind of okay. going backwards a little bit. Okay. Okay, cool. <laughs> but I wrote this because, you know, I'm a mom myself. And so as a nutrition person and, you know, a doctor doing this for a living, I kind of thought that it would be so obvious and easy to figure out how to feed my babies. And it's kind of complicated because there's so much mixed information out there. And I feel like there's a lot of research that's out there that a lot of moms and dads just don't know about. And so one of the biggest mistakes I talk about that parents can make is when you start feeding your baby to not be persistent with offering them different flavors of foods like vegetables, for example. A lot of times babies will turn their nose up to vegetables because they don't like the taste of them because they're used to tasting apples or pears or something that tasted sweet. So it's always important to lead with vegetables because you want your baby to develop a palate for that. And it sometimes takes a multiple exposures. It's not something that can happen overnight. And so you don't obviously want to force your baby to eat the foods, but you do want to offer it to them multiple times. And there's been plenty of studies that have suggested that that can help to increase likeness of those types of taste That's really and helpful. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely helpful for you know parents, I think, to be aware that don't give up. <laughs> yeah. What about um, when you're in the store and you know you have the choices between organic or non-organic or no antibiotics or? Yeah, it's a tough one. So for the organic side of it, I opt, when it comes to babies, I think that it's important to try to do organic food as much as we can, just because they're so little and they're so susceptible. And that first thousand days of life, that critical window is just so important for neural development. It's important for cognitive development. And it's important for their immune system development. So I think it's important we try to give them the purest, cleanest foods we possibly can. Now, that being said, there are some foods that you really don't need to go organic unless you really, really want to. Some of the thicker skinned fruits, for example, or vegetables like bananas, like we don't eat the banana peel. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the banana peel is pretty thick. So odds of the pesticides and chemicals getting in through that peel are pretty minimal. So if you need to, you know, cut back on your budget a little bit, you can opt for just non-organic vegetables and fruits that have those thicker skins. Okay. And Talk a little bit more about this idea of um, like food addictions that you you hit on something around sugar addiction. And I know, you know, there's a lot of addiction has such a brings up such a weird thought in your head. Yeah, it does. So when I first started doing this research on food addiction, totally the same idea crossed my mind where, you know, we think about addiction and we think automatically like drugs and alcohol, you don't think food could be in the same category. But what the research has actually shown is that when we look at the brains of people who are overeating sugar, it actually activates the same brain regions in the same way as the brains of somebody who's addicted to alcohol or the brains of someone who's using cocaine or morphine. And so we do see these overlaps in terms of the neurochemical symmetry. And we also see overlaps in terms of the behaviors, whereas, you know, people will talk about how they engage in these behaviors that 
feel like an addiction. They're binging on the food. They're craving it. They go into withdrawal if they don't have it. They get irritable and cranky. And, you know, they feel compelled to use it even though they don't want to. And so I think there's varying degrees of this that we're starting to see from the research, but it is a real phenomenon. And it's something that the research is, is supporting that, you know, we can hopefully be able to help people to recognize that they have an addiction and how they can, you know, get some help for it. Yeah, only, um, I guess, non-drug and alcohol addiction related to food sugar or are there others? Well, we started off looking at sugar because sugar had been identified as something that was particularly problematic for many individuals. But what we've found from subsequent research is that it seems to be the highly processed foods that are more likely to be addictive. And those highly processed foods are, you know, the things that we all think about, those shelf-stable, you know, cookies and snacks and things that are going to last for months and months and months on the grocery store shelves. And those foods actually tend to have a lot of added sugar. And so we do see that sugar and highly processed foods go hand in hand. So it does seem to be a strong link to sugar. How do we talk to our kids about that when they always want to go to the pantry and not the fridge? I know it's tough. I think that, you know, one thing that I try to do with my kids that works most of the time is to say, you know, get something out of the refrigerator if you want a snack, because odds are that the things that are in the refrigerator are going to be a lot better for them than the things that are in the pantry. And so I think that, you know, giving your kids a choice is important because if you tell them what to eat, then they're going to balk at you. But if you, you know, limit their choices and put them in the direction of healthy choices, it can really make a big difference. And how do you talk to, how old are your kids? My kids are 12 and five. Aww, mine are four and six. How do you talk to your kids about food? Well, I, I have two girls. And so I think it's important that we're very, very clear and, you know, transparent about the fact that this is all about health. It has nothing to do with your body and what it looks like. It has nothing to do with your body weight. This is about staying healthy so that you can have energy to run around with your friends. So you have energy to stay up and play with, you know, your friends after school and you have energy to do your schoolwork and just take good care of your body. And so we have this mindset with our kids that, you know, we want to teach them to police themselves, essentially, to let themselves have sweet treats now and then, but know when they've had too much. And I think that that's important because if you are constantly, you know, being the police to your child and telling them no, 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 they're never going to learn on their own when it's appropriate or not appropriate. So you, you think the children can understand when they've had too much? I think so. And I think that, you know, if you kind of go through examples, like for instance, I don't know about it at your kid's school, but it's somebody's birthday every single day at my kid's school. I swear <laughs> to God, some of these kids have like two or three birthdays a year. But if my kids have a cupcake at school because it was Susie's birthday, then they'll come home and ask for a snack and they'll say, well, I had a cupcake, so maybe I better have something a little healthier than I would normally have. Uh -huh. So I think that when you can get them to have that mindset around it and look at it from the standpoint of health and, you know, no foods are off the table. Yes, you can have cupcakes for someone's birthday. That's totally fine. But you want to make sure you follow that up with something healthy to kind of offset that sugar that you were taking in. Okay, I'm going to take it a little different direction. How do you, how do you talk to your kids or do you plan to about drugs and alcohol? Oh, absolutely. That's a conversation. Yes. Uh, we've been having that conversation, I think, before the food conversation, to be quite honest, because it's such really? an important issue. Okay. Yeah, I think, how, you know, how are you talking to your kids about that? Well, I think it's important, you know, that you introduce the concept very young, because unfortunately, we're seeing these trends where kids younger and younger are starting to try drugs and alcohol, you know, 
elementary school age. I mean, this is something that's the reality of what we're seeing. And so I think it's important to have that conversation. You know, we started off, you know, kind of talking about, you know, why you wouldn't take something that you don't know what it is from a friend. Or if somebody asks you to try something and you don't know what it is, you know, you don't want to take it. And kind of going through when it comes to alcohol, you know, why only mommies and daddies drink alcohol, why kids can't. And not just telling them they can't because they're not allowed, but telling them they can't because their brains aren't ready for it. And this is actually what the neuroscience suggests, that young people who end up using alcohol and drugs at an early age are more likely to get addicted than people who start using alcohol when they get older or drugs when they get older because their brains are not fully developed. And so if you have a 13 or a 14 year old drinking alcohol, they're putting themselves at grave risk for developing an addiction. Whereas if that person had waited until they were 21, then their brain will have matured and fully developed in a way that they're not gonna be at risk for addiction. Wow. And so I think that that's really an important point to bring up to your kids because yeah, if they're curious about things, that's one thing, but they don't wanna make a mistake where it's gonna be you know, a lifelong issue for them just because they were curious about it. Wow. Any advice, um, final advice? I mean, this is an, an incredible conversation. It sounds like your books um, are incredibly helpful. There's four of them. Dr. Nicole yes. Zena, all, uh, all about what to eat when you wanna get pregnant, how to um, have healthy eating with your baby and toddler. And what were your other two? Um, why diets fail because you're addicted to sugar. And then um, what to eat when you're pregnant which is all about nutrition during pregnancy and you know how to really just optimize the growth and development of your baby and have a, a healthy pregnancy as well. And you are, uh, what's the, you are a practicing physician right now, a researcher? I'm a, I'm a professor. So I do see a small subset of patients, but the majority of my work is doing research, writing, communicating with the public, and you know just really trying to get the word out there about the science behind how we can better eat and how we can take care of ourselves. Well, I, mean, I guess that would be the other, you know, question is um, that I think a lot of pregnant women have is like, is it okay to have a glass of wine while you're pregnant? Yes, this is a question that comes up and I say, yes, it is okay. As long as that once in a while isn't like every other night or even once a week. I think that, especially if you're toward the end of your pregnancy and if one glass of wine is gonna help you to relax and unwind, then I say go for it. Um, I think that we just wanna be mindful that, you know, it is a neurotoxin and it can get through the placenta. So we wanna be very, very limiting in terms of alcohol, but a little bit has been shown through the research to really have no impact on fetal development. So I say that, you know, especially toward the end when you're in those last couple of weeks and it's just, you know, the pregnancy's wearing on you, if it's going to make you feel a little bit better, then I think it's okay. And then neurotoxin is, um, does your brain clean itself? Your brain does clean itself. So we have these cells that can help to kind of clean up the mess and the broken cells and they kind of digest them and recycle the parts. And so that does happen. But we have to keep in mind that when we consume things like alcohol, and it's again, depends on our genetic makeup and you know other environmental considerations, sometimes you can have neurotoxicity, meaning that if you're eating, you're consuming too much alcohol, it can cause damage to some neurons that those, you know, cleaning up neurons can't necessarily always fix or repair. So just something to keep in mind. We just want to make sure we do things in moderation and really, you know, do it restricted when we are pregnant. 
Cool. Well, thank you so much. This is really, really helpful. Thank you. For more, please visit www.mamthematernity.com.